Welcome to In Search of the Mind of God. We invite you to search with us the mind of God. When searching His Word, we can always be sure of our salvation will not be used on man's ideas or false feelings. It will never be our purpose to promote any denominational doctrine of any religious group. Man is fallible. God is not. This program is brought to you by the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. We are located at 384 East Midway Road here in White City, Florida. This program contains previous recordings from Joe Wilson, who graduated from this life in 2018. We invite you to join us for worship. Personal Bible study is available, and we propose to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. often wondered, do they know what God loved? There's a lot of times that people tell me how much the Lord means to them. And every time I hear that, I just wonder if they ever have thought, what means the most to the Lord? There are things that we all prize and have advantages of in the world in which we live. And for this, we spend our time and our efforts in trying to cause ourselves to have more enjoyment and satisfaction with them. But what about somebody who spends an eternity with those people whom he has prepared while eternity was still going before time began. And then you understand what God loved. Do I have the right place or value when I try to determine how a man prizes a possession? What he thinks of his wife or his children? Do I really understand that man if I do not know what it would be that he would give all that he possessed to have. No emotional response is that that is needed. This is a calculated response. It is something that is determined beforehand. And because of that, it causes me to have more insight on this individual than I ever had before. So I ask yourself, or I ask you this question. What is it that God loved? What is it that he wanted? What is it that he calculated that it would cost him his life to establish? And did he do it as an emotional response? Or did he do it as something that was prepared from the foundations of the world? And then I'm going to understand a little bit more about God. In the East, people often hid their treasures by burial in the earth. 
they had no vaults or banks. And if you understand that, when a man possessed great value and great wealth, he would bury that treasure when he died. The family would not know a lot of times where it was buried. And therefore, they would have a difference of understanding than we do when it comes to treasure and what it is. There have been times that I have read about, and you and I can understand, that if a man went out and buried his treasure and his sons did not know where it was buried, as time would go by, they would sell that piece of property in which that treasure was buried and they would lose all that their father had possessed. Often it was found later by strangers and these strangers then would have the bounty that should have been passed to their children. Why this was done and the security that this uh, gave the older people was so that their children would not rise up and kill them and take that by force, which would be left. And it would also cause the old people to be waited on, fed, protected. Today we have these old folks' homes where a lot of old people are just placed and put and everybody forgets, a lot of people forget that they're there and there's nothing that there's of any value. Their securities in these old folks' homes have been placed not in vaults or not in caves or not in a field where they are buried, but they've been placed in a secure place, a place that everybody knows where they are. And so if the old people would stop and think a little bit, they'd change that procedure and they'd change it so that they would be of demand and would be able to have some control and some value. There's a lot of times when you think of buried treasure, not knowing where it might be buried, not appreciating the one who had possessed the great wealth, people would then callously and without consideration despise the older people that left this inheritance and try to force them to let them know where these things were. It is true then like it is now. Some of these people forgot. Some of the surface of the earth was changed so that they couldn't remember where it had been that they buried these treasures. And so all that they ever had and all they ever anticipated from their ancestors was gone. It caused you to have a different value and a value system than we have now. What is it that God buried in the earth? How did God value the church? Now there's two parables that are here. Verses 44 and then verses 45 and 46 of Matthew 13. And both of these have hidden treasures as the subject. In verse 44, if you're in Matthew 13, you will see 
that the one man found this treasure by chance. He had no vested value in it. He had no heir to inherit it from or no father to heir it from, but he found it. And if you'll read, you'll see that he had a different way of looking at it than the other. It says again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hid in the field, the which when a man had found, he hideth. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. He didn't need the field till he found the treasure. When he found the treasure, he went and bought the field in which the treasure was. When Jesus came to this world, the church wasn't here. And as he found that there would be those in this world that would be obedient and formulate the church of Christ that he would bring into existence, he then bought that world. He bought it so that they who loved him could sell all that they had and become a part of this field. Then, verses 45, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. One who, not looking for the truth, might chance upon it. But the merchant who knew that the pearl existed had predetermined to chance all that he possessed so that he could purchase her. What was the pearl? Anyone buying a field was entitled to everything hidden in it. The treasure had been hidden from thieves. The discovery was kept secret, if you'll notice. Otherwise, it would be stolen and taken and given to those for whom it was not intended. Israel was not the pearl of great price. No, God already had her. In Exodus, the 19th chapter and the 5th verse, she belonged to the Lord, as is spoken of again in Psalms 135 and 4. So people are trying to tell you that Israel is the pearl of great price are just wrong. God already possessed her. And God did not have to give up his son for his people to be of Israel. For God would not give up his son for people among people. But he would give up his son for something of such great value and of such great possession that those who had thought of themselves valuable and secure in the love of God would never be able to reckon that that price would have been paid. Jesus didn't happen upon Israel by accident. His coming to her was planned, prophesied. And he did not buy Israel, and it did not bring him, or she did not bring him, any joy. If you, weigh the, if you looked at the way the Lord looked at Israel, you'd wonder why somebody would even consider this at all. Turn quickly over here to Matthew 23, and I want to read you some pretty startling things. O Jerusalem, verse 37, Matthew 23, uh, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets which are sent unto thee, 
How often would I have gathered thee, even as a hen gathereth the chickens under her wings, and you would not? Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye should say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. There were those people that think or are today that Israel is still that for which God had sent his son. Israel, when Christ came, did not bring Christ any joy. John writes, he came into his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So for people to think that Israel is the pearl of great price is to be far off base. God already had her. He did not give up his son for her because he possessed her already. Jesus didn't happen upon her by accident like those that were in the field. And then coming to her had been planned and prophesied. So when we try to let on like this as Israel, there is nothing that fits the parable that is given. Oh, but what about the church? The church, as far as we know in the mind of God, exceeds any worth known to man. In Acts 20 and 28, Paul told the elders at Ephesus that Jesus purchased the church of God with his own blood. How much would a man give for the church? Well, God sent his son, and his son gave his life, and the son's blood was the price of ransom to to purchase the church that he intended to bring into existence. Or Ephesians 5, 23 through 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Some think we're too foolish and we're kind of old and old-fashioned to give up something for the church that we possess. Are we not to be like Christ? Is it not that we have to give up what we possess so that the church can continue. In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 7, 21 through 27, Jesus gives the great parable of he that builds his house, either on the rocks or on the sand, telling us and showing us without question or doubt that the greatest entity that God ever had in mind when creation was still in existence and man was just a thought, was to bring the church of Christ into existence. It's the only thing that God loved. It's the only institution that he purposed and prepared and planned. And when man values the church as unimportant, he's not acting like God. He's not thinking like deity. The Lord values things in a way that man does not. And the value that he placed on the church was beyond value. If I'm going to be a servant of God, then what kind of opinion am I to have of the church of Christ? How much am I to value 
her existence. Why would the church be so valuable? Well, there's a lot of temporal blessings that comes from the Lord's church. These temporal blessings are satisfaction and peace and solace, a haven to which we can flee when the world is so harsh and we can't withstand her, a place of friendship and camaraderie where people with like passions and like desires are there to greet and meet us when we come. We've not been able to find that in the world because the world does not possess that kind of value system, nor does it appreciate what God has loved. But the church does. So the Bible teaches that the church gives us spiritual blessings. These are blessings beyond those physical things that the world can provide. And these spiritual blessings are they which spiritual people desire. A lot of people don't desire spiritual blessings, and that's why they don't spend too much time in love with what God loved, the church of Christ. Unlike most possessions, the value of the church with God did not fluctuate. It was that one day he valued her and decided to give his life, and the next 10 billion years that followed thereafter, if you could measure time in eternity, he had changed his mind. God had predetermined from the foundations of the world to bring the church of Christ into existence. The Apostle Paul, in writing to his son in the Gospel Timothy, if you'll turn over to me to 1 Timothy, the first chapter, he had made a statement that a lot of people don't understand. And because they don't understand this, they don't understand the love that God had for the church of Christ that he purchased with his blood. As we read, we see the plan of God appearing. In 2 Timothy, not first, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, the first chapter, and read verse 9 and 10 with me. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Watch this phrase now which was given to his own in Christ Jesus before the world began. No, the value of the church with Christ did not fluctuate. It wasn't something that was here today and gone tomorrow. It wasn't that Christ determined to bring into existence and then change his mind. It was from the foundation of the world from the moment that the process of the thought of God the Father had ever been announced that it was the church that deity had determined it would bring into existence unlike most possessions it never fluctuated unlike most possessions the price couldn't go up how can you pay more for something than all. How can you give more than your life? And how could your life be more valuable than that for which you have given it? A man with great wealth one day was in the basement and he found a trap door and he closed it. Years later, when the man went to die, he took his wealth and hid it in the basement in that trap door. When he passed away, nobody knew where it was. 
His wealth had no value to any. And a lot of people thought that the old man had squandered it and put it in a place that it was of no value. There's a lot of people that thought the old boy went to heaven. And so as his daughter-in-law was one of those people, she was with her young son one day, and she said, you know, if granddaddy went to heaven, he probably placed his wealth in the attic of the house so that when he was flying up to be with the Lord, he could stop off and get his money and take it with him. A little, little boy had an idea. So he got up in the attic and looked all around. He searched that thing from one end to the other, and he came back, and he was with his mom, and he was sad and forlorn. And she said, son, what's wrong? What, what, what's got your uh, uh, attitude in such a, a frayed thing? Well, she said, you told me that Grandpa went to heaven and that if he went to heaven, he'd put his gold up there in the attic. She said, Dad, Granddaddy must have not gone to heaven. He must have gone the other way. And when he went to the other way, his gold was still up there, and I went up there to look for it, and none of it was there. He didn't get it when he passed by. Years later, the young man was thinking of what he had told his mother, and so he went down into the basement, and he found that which had been hidden in the earth many years before. What Christ determined of value was something that was in this earth that was hidden. There was something here that he knew that he came to purchase. What was here on the outside in the fanfare of mankind was not what he was after. But he was looking for a chosen generation, a royal peace priesthood, a chosen people with an attitude and a heart likened to himself. And he knew he had to come down here and find it and bring out the best of us in everything that we are. Later, when Jesus died on Calvary's tree, the purchase price of the church had been made. He then could bring the church of Christ into existence and call people from out of the world into that institution that he came to establish. And that was the purpose for his coming. Christ is that which explains the church, and the church is that which explains Christ. You see, in the book of 1 Timothy, while you're in the Timothy uh, epistle, turn to 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, and look with me in verse 8. You're going to see that this truth is taught. Listen. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable in all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And if you look in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, you'll see that Paul told Timothy something else. He says, I am now Paul the aged, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me in that day, and not to me only, but all them that love is appearing. The church explains Christ. Christ explains the church. Unto now, 
under principalities and powers in heavenly places was to be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he hath purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. It was the church that was to make man available to God as forgiveness of sin could be brought into existence. It was the church that was to show that God loved. It's the church that explains God. And there's a verse of scripture. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the first chapter and the 21st and 22nd verses. You'll see that the church was the entirety, the all in all, the totality of everything that Christ is, was, and intended to be. Writing to the church of Christ at Ephesus, the apostle Paul writes, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world that is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now watch this. Which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. The entirety. The totality of purpose. It was the church that would be the medium for the forgiveness of sin. It would be the church that Christ would bring into existence that was an explanation of why he came. It was the church that brings comfort and joy in an unexplained world to those who cannot understand why God so loved it. But he brings a wealth that unlike the wealth of the world, nothing can tarnish. Others, great wealth and ruin lays all over the country. I look every once in a while to the pyramids in Egypt and I wonder why those old boys spent so much time building those pyramids. Why would you want to spend 50 to 80 years on the earth and then spend all your loot to build you a place to bury your body which is going to decay and they could stop it in a sense and then cover it with gold and think it would be the place that you would want as an epitaph to your existence when all that had to be done was for the Roman Catholic Church to come along and strip the gold off the veneer of those pyramids, take it and use it in St. Peter's Basilica on the dome and replace it with nothing. You see, when you're dead and gone, you can't control what happens. And somebody else can come and take what you have spent all of your life to build, as some of those pyramids did, and can take from you, and you can't stop it or do anything about it. Wealth, then, is not permanent. Not only is it not permanent, but it can tarnish. Great wealth may ruin people, as it has many. If you look at some of these sports characters that are playing around in the world today who think they're so great and the gift of God to the world, you'll find out that their life is ruined by all of that money and power and position that those sports give them. And what might have ordinarily been a tremendous individual who could do a lot of the good things for his wife and his family after they've had five or six wives and five, 15 to 20 children and in many divorce courts and lawyers that they could afford, they wind up as paupers with nothing to possess. 
We can't all attain great wealth, but we can all obey the gospel. And what Christ left on in this world was something that would, that would bless everybody that's involved in it. So what is it that God loved? Does he love you because you love the same thing he loves? Do you have the same heart and mind for value as he? Have you given up anything for the church? Or has it cost you nothing? Your wealth and your education, your honor and your acceptance may be the same as it would be if you were in Christ. But there's a lot of people that have given all that up and are not even saved. So what does the church cost you? Christ not only found the pearl, he bought it. A lot of times I find people that I can teach the gospel of Christ and they know and recognize this pearl of great price. They see what it is and the great value that it possesses. But they don't give up everything they've got to possess it. You know, this merchant in the 45th and 6th verses, this merchant already had other pearls. But you know what he did to buy this pearl of great price? He gave up the rest of them. He gave up all of them for one. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that don't give up too much for the Lord, particularly if it's going to cost them a little. Some find the church with little effort. Others seek it with a great deal of effort. Some are reared in it and grow up knowing about it. Some find it by chance, but some find it by great effort. Some find it because they've sought the truth over years and they've learned to discriminate between truth and counterfeit religion. And it seems for them the value of the church is far greater than the people to whom it was handed on silver platters. So the Lord has got an institution that has made us to be the greatest thing that God had ever intended to bring into this world. And we treat it with complacency. We act as though it's not important because we've not given up anything for it. But the merchant, as is spoken of as Christ, sought it. Where one had dug up by chance, the other gave all that he had. And I have to ask you the question, and you know that I'm going to ask, who appreciated it the most? If you have to give up old friends or your old religion or your old ways, and if you decide that that's not worth your while, then you've decided that the church is not worth much. The merchant knew what he was looking for. And when he found it, he never stopped to try to Jew anybody down. He never tried to buy it cheaper. It looks to me like that he never questioned the price. And because he never questioned the price, he knew immediately what he was going to do at the moment he found it. He maybe had to give up family ties. He maybe had to give up land and territory. He may have had to give up a good job. 
an opportunity. Or he may have had to give up a closeness and proximity to his job so that he could worship in a church to save his soul. What has cost you and I to be a part of the church? It cost God the life of his son. It cost Christ his life's blood. Is it unreasonable for God to expect us to give up something so that the church can continue to be? We value things by the price that we put on them. The price of our soul is worth what? The blood of Christ. The price of the church was the blood of Christ. Your soul and my soul is not worth the church. The church is far greater in comparison and quality and quantity than any individual that's ever been. And so if I have to give up just a little bit, if I have to be a little uncomfortable, if I have to do a little extra work, if we have to get in and rub elbows with people that we're not particularly crazy about, what is the worth of the soul? The price that we pay, if it's as cheap as we can get it, will never cause us to value the church in the way that Christ did. And then some people put off the purchase or put off their soul salvation are determined that it's not time for that yet to be done. And whatever we give up, it would be cheap in comparison with the value that Christ gave for the church. Are you happy where there's, no, where there's a bargain for Christianity? Are you happy where the soul is not fed and the challenge is not from the God of heaven? Are you happy buying religion at a cheaper price than God has required? I know of many things that men pay too much to possess, and then after they get it, they hate what they possess. But I never find that Christ hated the church after he owned her. The intrinsic value then of what God has determined is the greatest possession that's ever been and ever will be is something that he continues to love and will love through eternity without ceaseless ages. If our minds and our hearts are not considerate of the same thing as the Lord's Maybe heaven's not the place for us to prepare to go. If we feel like that we have to be in the big church with the big this and the big that instead of struggling to fight the good fight of faith, and maybe we think that it's just going to cost us too much to be a part of the family of God. If we are considerate of what Christ loved and we're supposed to love Christ, why is it that we don't know and understand that what he loved, we have to love? What he decided was of great value, we have to think is of great value. How can we treat the church as though she is not the pearl of great price? 
it's often a misunderstood thing. And because of that, people don't reckon that the God of heaven has cost his son a price that he has required of us. If you have to give up his life's blood, what does he require of me? If it cost him all he had, what am I supposed to do? If he laid down his life for people he didn't know and understand and appreciate until he was able to cause them to become a part of that institution and they could be guided and directed to become like himself, when at times it was not comfortable to be around them or be with them, what is it that he's required of us? The question of the hour is, what is your pearl? Some people's pearls are just to have their way. It doesn't matter as long as they get their way how things go. And of course, their way is like everything else. It changes and fluctuates. Is it that that God has had his way with? Or is it is something that we want and we have determined? The pearl of great price presents us a great obstacle. And it causes us a great problem if we've not been prepared in our hearts and make the rest of our life determinant to find the pearl in our life that Jesus had in his and to love it as much as he did. There's a song that's written, if there's a higher place that I could lift you to, Lord, then I will lift you to that place. There's no realm, there's nothing in this world that I would stop to give to grant the church of Christ the place that you granted her in your life while you were here on the earth. See, it's a little different when we ask, what did God love? Instead of us trying to let on like that we love God and we've made the decision and we're the one that's done this and that. What did God love? What did he value? What did he make a reality? And if we love God, we're going to love the church as much as he. If you're not a member of the church of Christ, Jesus commands he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he'll add you to that church once you're baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And then we can live to spend eternity and go home to be with a bunch of people that have loved the church as much as Christ. Because there's one thing you can bet yourself as long as you live. There will be nobody in heaven that didn't love the church more than life. As we continue to grow the church and carry the legacy of Joe David Wilson, in this next segment, you will hear sermons from the current preachers here at the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. Welcome to the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. We are located at 384 East Midway Road, Port St. Uh, White City, Florida. Um, I'm glad you're here with us tonight <clears throat> and our, our reading earlier that we had read during our opening prayer was Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 10 <clears throat> and that's what our sermon is going to be on tonight when did Christ die for us 
when did Christ die for you? And I don't mean historically. We all know that Christ died on the cross about 2,000 some odd years ago. When Christ died for you, what were you like? What kind of person were you? What kind of person did Christ die for? For the wealthy, the privileged, the righteous, or the religious, the good, the bad, the ugly? Paul states in in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For yet we were without strength, that we were powerless. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And also, Paul so states, And that God sent Christ in the fullness of time. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, and made under the law. In verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. When we say Christ came in the fullness of time, we mean that Christ's coming was the central event in all of human history. All prior time looked forward to this event, which was Christ's death. And all time following looks back to it. God sent his son at the perfect time, the time that he, God, had appointed before all time had begun, before the world was formed, before man, that is about as far back as I can go, before time, Christ and God decided that when the time had fully come, God would send his son. There are a few ways that we should understand the term at just the right time. In Romans chapter 5, the right time was when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, and, and when we were sinners and the enemies of God. This was just the right time. And just, why is that? <clears throat> First, because we, we were at our deepest point of need, whether we realized it or not. If Christ would have waited for us to improve ourselves, well, he would still be waiting. If Christ had waited until we got our lives all pulled or put back together or put together, if he had waited until we had learned to resist sin and follow God's law perfectly, Christ would have never had to have died. Therefore, his death would have not been necessary then. This is God's son, his only son, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the church, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What What were we like when Christ died for us? Christ died for us, first of all, when we were powerless. In Romans chapter 5, and verse 6 says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The word powerless in this verse is a word that means without strength. It can also mean that we were, that we were sick or that we were weak. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41, to watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's not that we were physically weak. 
but rather we were spiritually weak. We were powerless to resist sin, and we were powerless to do right. We were powerless to help ourselves spiritually. Paul puts it this way in the book of Ephesians. God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, that is sin, it is by grace, which is God's love, you have been saved. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5, and you can't get more powerless than being dead. The cross was not only a demonstration of Christ's love for us, it was also a demonstration of God the Father's love. And some people have the misplaced idea that God was the one who, who was mad at us because of our sin. And it was Jesus who loved us so much that he came to die on the cross for us. But in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us that Jesus' death on the cross was a demonstration of God's love for us. God the Father willingly sent his own son, his own son, his only son, whom he loved dearly, to die on the cross for, our, for man's sins. Now, how did God show his love for us? Not just that Christ died for us, but Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Christ, the perfect, the sinless, the spotless lamb of God, died for man. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, says here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which is the atonement for our sins. Christ died for us when we were God's enemies. This means that sin is not only a, a failure, but a falling short of God's will. But it is also a rebellion. It is a re refusal to God's will. It's not that we want to do God's will and fall short. It's that we fall short because we do not want to do God's will. And so therefore, we are God's enemies. And yes, we used to be God's enemies, but now we are his friends. Jesus said to his followers, I have called you friends in John 15 and verse 15. We used to be under God's wrath, but now we rejoice in him because we have received reconciliation. We are at peace with God, a peace which God himself provided at the cross in which we received our salvation. We should always put Christ at the forefront along with God the Father. That Christ should be our focus, it should be our goal, and our chief desire. Christ is the center point of our mind, our hearts, and our body, and our soul. Everything that we do, we do for Christ's glory. As we run the race marked out for us, we lay aside the entangling sins and the worldly distractions, fixing our eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, in, verse, in verses 1 and 2, Wherefore, seeing we are also com compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth 
so easily beseed us. And let us run with patience <clears throat> the race that is set before us. And in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our, of our faith, who for the, the joy that was set before us, and him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. If you are here tonight and have heard the gospel and would like to be added to the kingdom that is everlasting and that is built without hands, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 18, and if, the righteous, and, and if the righteous is scarcely be saved, then where shall the ungodly stand? As we stand and sing the hymn of invitation, we have water available, and you can be added to the kingdom that is laid up in store to those who keep his commandments. Time is of the essence, and we must prepare now for the future. Will you come as we stand and sing the hymn of invitation? If you enjoyed today's sermon, read our regularly updated blog for insightful articles by visiting us online at pslchurchofchrist.com. If you would like to watch previous sermons, they can be viewed on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash pslchurchofchrist. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pslchurchofchrist. Or if you prefer to visit us in person to learn more on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m., as well as Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. And you can visit us at 384 East Midway Road next to Walgreens. See you next week.